think at the moment we have a problem where a lot of the work is not being focused on problems that have good clinical impact. It's very hard to for computer scientists and doctors to collaborate with each other effectively. And I feel like that needs to happen in order for people with the right technical expertise to work on problems that have real clinical impact. Because genuinely, a lot of people with the technical skills just have no idea about the actual impactful problems in practice. Yeah, so I think I would encourage people as much as possible to be bold in your decision-making. And for me, that meant constantly putting myself out of my comfort zone. If you want to become, you're interested in entrepreneurial stuff or, you know, or, or the main, you're coming from a technical background, but you want to move into healthcare, like try and put yourself in as much situations as possible where you're surrounded by people with the expertise that you want to gain. Gain a mentor specifically in the field that you're not comfortable in rather than the, the one that you're coming from. And for me. All right. So hello and welcome everyone to whoever is listening to this particular podcast. Today we have with us Emma Rashetu. Uh, Emma is a final year medical student at the University of Cambridge and also pursuing her PhD in machine learning with a focus on applications for healthcare. With her knowledge on of cl- clinical decision making, she's working on research projects that leverage uh, machine learning techniques to improve clinical workflows and more than that. She'll be t- taking her role as an academic doctor post her graduation. Um, Emma, it's nice to have you. Thanks for being here. Thanks for inviting me. I'm very excited. So, yeah. Uh, so you have a background in medical science prior to doing your PhD uh, in machine learning. And also you have a bit of a background in your engineering. And uh, so what was your interest point in AI? Like, how did you first learn about AI and what got you most interested to pursue like a a degree, like PhD in machine learning post that? Mm. Um, I think to answer this question properly, I probably have to go a bit further back than when I was even originally considering um, PhDs, because it feels like I've kind of like sort of stumbled into this area rather than an intentional route towards it um so yeah so originally when I was applying for university I applied for medicine um and at the time like I had a little bit of doubt in my mind because when I was studying school I really enjoyed maths and physics and they were my most strong but also the the subjects that I enjoyed the most um and actually when I started the medicine course in Cambridge in the first week, I got doubts. I initially was thinking, oh no, like I might have picked the wrong course. And I was suddenly very jealous of my friends doing engineering. And I thought, you know, I think I should change course. Um, So I actually contacted the um, head of engineering in my college um, to ask, you know, is there a possibility that I could change course? And then he did a like interview of me, um, almost like I was an undergrad applying for the subject all in the first week of university um, and looked at my results and then finally said okay we're happy for you to join the engineering course and then I got cold feet and then didn't because I'm thinking this feels too rushed like maybe I should try medicine you know I don't want to ask myself what if questions and think that I panicked in my first week and then changed so anyway so I continued with medicine 
um, I did the first two years of the course. Um, and by the end of the second year, you know, I'd done fairly well. And I'm thinking maybe this is the right fit for me. I'm not sure. I, I really enjoyed learning about all the topics. And then um, in Cambridge, they give you the opportunity to do a year of a different subject in your third year. So most of the time, this is something related to medicine. But for me, I thought now's my chance to finally go and do engineering for a year and see, is this what I should have been doing all along? Um, and that's what I did. And I really, really enjoyed that year. Um, you know, that was the first exposure that I had to any kind of um, like advanced maths, but also um, any sort of programming as well. Because before before my third year of university, I thought I was like a technophobe. I thought that I just couldn't use computers. I was the one who was sort of asking my friends, like, how do you use Excel? Like, I don't even know how to do do formulas in Excel or even make graphs or anything. I just had this impression of myself that I just couldn't work with computers and that it was beyond me and too difficult. So that kind of, that year sort of turned my perspective a little bit because I realized that actually computer science is not like, it's, it's not, it's a lot of sort of problem solving and logic and that that kind of skills is actually a lot more similar to the mathematical side of things that I enjoyed than, um, you know, any kind of like, uh, I don't know, hardware stuff. I think I just had like the wrong impression of what it meant. Um, so, yeah, so basically that was the first time that kind of opened my eyes to perhaps I should be looking at kind of uh, technology and that kind of thing might fit me so um yeah do you want me to carry on telling you like how I got to the the PhD in the end or yeah yeah I mean I mean first of all just to comment on that like it's it's a very very interesting story like a lot of people and it, it, it's very interesting like what you're going to say next is like basically like you coming from a background where you had hard troubles understanding like just the basic technical details of working with uh, these skills but you're on spot on uh, understanding like computer science is much more on the mathematical framework and using those um knowledge to maybe program like programming is just a tool like computer science students use to uh, solve a problem but it is not not much on the sector of like computer engineering where you have to learn the nitty-gritty details of how a computer works it's much more on what you build on top of that but yeah I'll, I'll, I'll let you continue like what how did you go from learning excel to learning ai <laughs> well um as part of the engineering course we had to do like a couple of projects that involved um sort of like a programming language called MATLAB. Um, and so I had to, I just had to do some basic MATLAB. I actually did ask for a lot of help from my friends because at the time, you know, the, the other people doing the course had used it before and I hadn't. So I felt a bit kind of like, oh, this is very strange. You know, why can't I click undo? And like just all the, all the stuff that you get confused by when you're first learning to program. Um, but actually towards the end of that year, there was an organization in the university called Code First Girls, which was targeted at um, particularly getting sort of um, women and other genders involved in um, learning to code. And that was, that was a real breakthrough for me because I think there was just something a bit less intimidating about that and you've been very honest about me being a beginner and so I joined that and we actually made a website 
Um, so it was actually HTML initially. So and then and then later on we moved on to Python. Um, and that was when I was sort of really, really opened my eyes to the possibilities. Cause when I when I first learned a, a little bit of Python, I was like, wow, like this tool is super cool. We can make anything with this. And then I started signing up to like any hackathon that I could hear about in the local area in London. I was sort of traveling the country to go to various hackathons. I must have gone to about 10 or 11 in the preceding year. Um, so, yeah, like it was kind of that that was what really opened my interest was that year in engineering. And I also did a summer project at the end of that year, um, which was in Oxford. And I did um, about 12 weeks of a computational project where I was analyzing data um, from ferret brains, actually. Um, but it was like a purely computational project. So that also gave me more exposure to MATLAB as well. And um, so I had the, the opportunity to kind of learn in a bit more detail as to how I would use these kind of tools. Um, and yeah, and so after that year, I went back to medicine. I actually did the first clinical year of the course. Um, and during, so another thing I should explain about Cambridge is they have this um, fairly unique although apparently in the US it's more common, um, but in the UK it's called the MD-PhD course. And in the US, I think there's a similar thing called the MD-PhD. And so I applied for that, but that's kind of quite unique because they, if, if they grant you a place, they give you funding, but you don't have to say what PhD you're going to do. So okay. you, they actually give you funding for three years to do any PhD, and then you go to different labs and say, I have money to do a PhD. Would you consider me? Um, yeah, which is kind of, so I applied for that thinking I'm interested in research. I don't really know what it is that I'm interested in. I hadn't narrowed it down to technology. I still thought I might want to do bioengineering or something a lot more, maybe mechanical engineering involving biomaterials or something like that. I really had no idea, but I applied for that program and was successful and that's when I then spent, so during that clinical year, when I was on placement, I was also visiting various PhD labs, trying to figure out like what I might use these three years for. And that then leads me on to about, after about 10 or 12 labs, I finally found what would be my future PhD supervisor, um, an Italian called uh, Pietro Leo. And he was so enthusiastic about me like I can't really explain how like what it was like because I feel like when I was applying for all these technical PhDs I just got the feeling quite often when I'd approach a potential supervisor they would then ask me right so you've got one year of technical expertise like already and that's kind of one year of engineering you mainly did mechanical engineering let's face it you've not done any programming and they're just looking at me like <laughs> you know are you serious kind of thing but this guy, like my future PhD supervisor, was just like, he was so motivated to make it work. Like I could tell he was so enthusiastic to work with me. You know, he wanted, he was immediately trying to introduce me to all the other lab members. And I just got this feeling that, you know, I should go for it. I should try and do this PhD in the computer science department. And yeah, like go into the, the kind of technology end of medicine so that's kind of how it happened but it wasn't very intentional 
And it was kind of like I mainly sent out cold emails to several labs without really knowing what it was that I was going for. So hopefully that vaguely answers your question. Yeah, no, it, it does. And I think it's it's like a very um, inspiring and unique story because for most of the people, even coming from a computer science background, it's very hard to get off started like in a very researchy field, which especially like AI, like most of the people are intimidated by the mathematics and programming that's needed by uh, that particular field or that those particular works. So I think it's it's really interesting and motivating like you coming from, like, like, like you said, like you just had like a very basic level of one year of experience working with MATLAB, which is a very small subsection of what programming needs for AI but yeah I think the the motivation and it's good to like to be honest I didn't know like US offers that particular program like MD plus uh, PhD but yeah I mean I don't have a medical background, so I have never explored that particular field of what's being offered. But that's pretty cool like um, pursuing two degrees that's completely like I mean, there's there's an intersection for sure but the almost least overlap between two fields but they still promote so that's that's good to know but i i wanted to learn like so like you said like again uh you started off in a very from scratch domains like you did not have like an extensive training in let's say computer science degrees or something like that so how did you go about learning the basics so like once you're in this lab um you joined for your phd like how did you go about like was that like a very intimidating process or overwhelming process to learn the basics of how do you train models on GPU, what are these machine learning models, what exactly they are doing, and lots of other things. How did you go about learning the basics? Yeah, I mean, that was that was a very up, uphill struggle for me. In fact, even, even getting the place on the PhD, because even though I had funding, that's one step. I didn't have like an acceptance to the department. So before I could even properly apply, I did some courses on um, Coursera. I think now it's quite well known that there's a course by I think it's Andrew Ung that's like introduction to machine learning it might have changed now but at the time that I did it it was 2000 and early 2017 um and so I did that and I also did a couple of other courses and tried to sort of teach myself to program because I had a very 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 basic python understanding you know I had no idea what objects and classes were at the time, like it was really, really, really basic. Um, so I was going on sort of code wars, trying to do like the the problems that they have there and Code Academy and everything. But it's really hard to motivate yourself, I think, without a project. Um, so I didn't really get that far before I started my PhD. And then once I started the PhD, you know, I didn't really know anyone very well. I was not doing the same work as the other people in the lab initially. And also my supervisor was actually on sabbatical for the first, at least the first term, maybe the first two terms. So I pretty much had, like, I was there in the department and I actually remember I broke my um, operating system twice in the first week um, because, <laughs> because I uninstalled Python from a Linux machine, um, which I realized is an integral part of the operating system now. So I remember the system admin coming upstairs, looking at me like, how did you get into this department? You know, (laughs) I could just tell what he was thinking. But um, yeah, I'd say that the biggest help is really to find yourself a mentor in the area that you, so someone to look up to. If you can think, I would like to be like you in, um three four years time I think that's an ideal person to be a mentor 
And I found someone who was like that um, in my lab. He's quite well known now. So it always feels like I'm name dropping him now. But back then, uh, so his, his name is Petar Velichkovich. Um, and he now sort of works in um, graph um, neural networks in DeepMind. But back then, you know, he hadn't even published his gap paper then and stuff. And he was still very keen to teach people. And, you know, basically he helped me so much. Like he patiently sat me down, showed me what Keras was, because back then that's what we were using, not PyTorch. Um, and yeah, and then basically kind of helped me to get my first ever LSTM running and, you know, just to see, I remember at the time it felt like the biggest thing. I was like, wow, like I'm running something on a GPU and it's like <laughs> giving me predictions. And, you know, I wasn't doing anything groundbreaking, but I think just step by step, having a mentor there and having a project, like having an idea in your mind, like I have this data and I want to get, I want to give it this input and this output and see what the results are and, I think that is very helpful rather than just kind of a very imprecise goal. Like I just want to teach myself to program is kind of, you have to do things stepwise and have like a clear goal in mind at all times, I think. And yeah, so basically the first one to two years of my PhD really felt like I was stumbling around with very little direction. And it felt like there's just no way that I'm going to get this PhD in the end. I'm so far behind. Um, and, you know, just comparing myself to other people on the program as well, who were just super accomplished, publishing in Europe in their first year, you know, which is fairly standard there. But like for me, it was just so far off. Um, yeah, yeah. But I think it was just, I don't know, I think maybe even even when it was sort of really hard, I just had this belief in myself that I would make it work in the end. And I'm not sure where that came from, but luckily kept me going. Yeah, no, what you said makes sense. And one of the key things that you mentioned was like uh, losing like a sense of direction, right? So that's very, pretty common. And that's one of the reasons why um, even I started this particular channel was that like a lot of people normally feel uh, that particular sense of direction lacking in machine learning fields because this field pretty of started in like maybe less than a decade ago and like the interest in this field has been growing like at, a, at an exponential rate and most of the times like there are not many good courses or graduate courseworks or maybe like a, I would say like a, a degree course that takes you from point A to point B like starting from scratch so most of the time people end up learning from themselves it's it's like self-paced learning what needs to be learned and like you said like yeah having a mentor really helps because most of the times like when you learn from someone's mistakes or maybe like what not to do or not what not to waste your time on that's like a big big time saver for like at least few months and that's why even like how I learned like from like it, it was not basically like a mentor but like more like a student who was like a senior PhD student so he would tell me don't waste your time learning these tools like just go on like that would be much more useful you don't have to be the best programmer like you have to you don't have to like write the most optimized code to run your machine learning models but focus on these tools focus on these techniques so i think yeah it, it makes sense and like courses like what you said like by andrew yang like they are like like the holy grail for someone to get started because there are only limited resources you can you can stumble on and it's it's one of the least confusing ones. So yeah, yeah, it, it makes sense what you said. 
Um, but uh, coming to the question, so yeah, now you're in, in your lab, like I'm just um, picturing like your timeline. So now you're in your lab and you pretty much decided like using, you want to work on research projects that combine maybe your clinical knowledge, your your medical knowledge, and that complements your skills as an AI researcher. So let me let me break down these set of questions one by one and maybe to understand from someone who has been like working in this field for a long time what do you think is the promise of ai in the medical research community like a lot of people talk about like using ai for good or maybe ai for social good purposes but what do we mean when we say like what if if someone tells you why should if i'm a person from medical background like why should i care about ai so in 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 loose terms like what do you think is the biggest promise of ai in medical um community mm, interesting question i think um you phrased it quite positively which is interesting and i also i probably would count myself in the camp where i'm generally excited about the introduction of ai but i also think if i was coming at it from a medical perspective I think it's also important to have a healthy amount of skepticism as well. Um, yeah. In terms of the positives, I think I think there's lots of ways that AI has the potential to um, make uh, care for patients better. So um, I think, well, what, one example could be that um, perhaps making certain processes within the hospital more efficient. Um, perhaps be, being able to check patients kind of more frequently and evaluate their risk of developing a certain adverse um, complication, like more basically. So sort of doing some of the monitoring of patients, especially in sort of the high dependency unit and that kind of thing. Um, it might also help us to personalize care to patients because at the moment in medicine, we kind of have these treatment protocols that are a bit more one size fits all. So we have like an asthma protocol for children and adults and the, the two different ones but that's it it's just whether a child or an adult but actually I think AI has the potential to um you know in a kind of um data-driven way to personalize treatment um for different kinds of patients that should make treatments better I think overall and um, it might also make medicine safer because at the moment like human error is huge in medicine i don't i don't actually know the statistic on what percentage of drug prescriptions are errors but it would shock you i think if you actually knew <laughs> um, and i think you know having ai kind of preside over the prescriptions and flag anything that's like mm, i'm not sure about this one um yeah like there's lots of examples where i think it could also just improve efficiency and make certain services cheaper like for, for instance, screening. So um, obviously a lot of a lot of applications that are actually being deployed at the moment are in the kind of radiology type um, specialties or histopathology or something that's very image focused. Because I think that's the one slash two areas, maybe you could count language now, which is really, you know, becoming big at the moment. But um, I'd say image was the first domain where we kind of achieved human-like performance I'd say with you know with AI compared to humans and so that was kind of the most obvious field that that was gonna you know become implemented first um so I think something like you know if you're doing a breast screening program um and at the moment if we're having it every image checked by say two clinicians we could have an AI be one of the the checks and that's going to improve kind of efficiency and reduce the workload 
So that means you can screen more people or offer it to younger people maybe or more often or something. Um, so I think there's a lot of exciting possibilities. Um, I think with a lot of technology, it's kind of like a lot of people are going to, let me get this the right way around, overestimate its short-term effect. So I think people think it's going to completely transform medicine in the next five years, which I would be like, mm, I think medicine will be not that different in five years, but I think people will underestimate its long-term effects. So if you look in 50 years, I think it might be completely transformative. Um, and I think some doctors are a bit wary of that because, you know, they're thinking, is AI going to take over my job? Um, and I don't really think that's the case. I feel like it will it will alter the role of the doctor a bit, I think, um, because almost like AI is going to it's very good at tasks that involve kind of analyzing data. And a lot of the job currently of a doctor is to take into account certain data and types. And I think sort of, if you imagine like AI as an extension to a clinician's brain, you can think of like the data crunching center being like one part of the job that maybe might be less important for a clinician in the future, but actually providing the direct care to patients, you know, explaining treatment plans to them, taking into account patients' own preferences and what, what's going to work around their lifestyle, examining, like all these things are much, much harder for AI to achieve. So to just say AI is going to take over the role of a doctor is not, like I feel like it just, it really distills the role of a doctor down to something that I think is not accurate. And yeah, like um, doctors aren't just data crunching centers really. Um, but they are decision makers. And I still think that's going to be the case because even if AI is brilliant at doing the data interpretation part of the job, it's still down to the doctor to actually make the decision in the interest of the patient or with the patient, because only they can sort of it in incorporate the patient's preferences and all of these other factors and the realistic factors of how we're going to actually achieve the treatment plan. And also, Maybe this is my cynical side coming in. But if you think of how AI is developed, like especially in medicine and because there's such a high barrier to implementation, I feel like at the moment it's mainly sort of private companies that are making, you know, AI products which are going to be ultimately deployed because it's very hard for academia to achieve that kind of thing with far less resources. And so uh, you know, if you've got private companies making these products, ultimately they need to make a profit. And I feel like at least in the UK, clinicians are the ones that are best positioned to make ultimate decisions for patients because they're the ones who, it's the patient's health interest that is truly in their own interests. Um, so I think it's also the doctor's duty in the future to safeguard patients from potential harmful impacts of AI. You know, for example, you know, uh, invading privacy, you know, just because social media data or GPS data taken from patients with mental health problems or something, just because that's informative doesn't mean you should use it and that it's in their interest. And, you know, protecting that data, I think, you know, bias models as well, you know, um, making sure that models are safe to be deployed for the patients, I think is also very much the role of the doctor. So I don't know, coming back to your original question, what's like, um, I guess, why should I be interested in AI as a doctor? 
I think just like if I had no expertise in it, I would, I would be, I would definitely take something seriously that I felt was going to have a significant impact on my future job in 20 years. And I think a lot of doctors, they kind of fall into perhaps two camps where one thinks, oh, there's no way it could do the job that I do. Like that's ridiculous. Everyone, there's so much hype, but it never comes to fruition versus maybe a few doctors that are in the younger camps that have maybe like maybe tampered with chat GPT a bit and they think, oh no, like this is going to completely take over the job. And actually I think the truth is somewhere in between and it's going to be a more slow evolution, I think. Um, Because if we think back to the introduction of any new technology in medicine, I think it always felt like a superpower at the time to be able to, you know, look inside people's bodies and do all this really cool stuff that we've never been able to do. But in the end, it doesn't change like the heart of what the role is, which is to, you know, improve the the health of patients and provide care to patients. I don't think that's going to change the essence of what it means. So, yeah. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And just to add on that, like um, uh, last year I attended this one of these conferences called Mekai, which is like a perfect intersection of people coming from uh, AI domain and medical domain, like clinicians who operate uh, in these settings. And one of the, there was one of the debates, like is AI ready for prime time use in medical research? And this was just like a debate for fun, but there were some very nice points that maybe I still remember on these lines. Is, uh, someone said that... Um, you should use or maybe see AI as more like a productivity tool for medical researchers rather than someone who can replace them. So like what you said, like most of the times when technology was introduced, like sometime back when they had like the digitalization for these medical institutes, it did not replace them or like it did not change the way uh, medical researchers would or medical experts would operate, but it will enhance them. And what you said for the scale is really true. Like um, there were actually a few startups, in fact, from UK who claimed that like actually it helps doctors reach particular regions or maybe particular set of patients that they could not like, like let, let's say if I'm looking for five patients in a day, I'm a practicing doctor, then now I can at least see eight patients because these tools make my life easier or maybe the error, like if, if if I'm able to make errors in a in a very extreme scenario where I'm going through something and my head is not in the right space, these tools would basically uh, help me. So it's it's more like what we have for self-driving. It's not going to replace them, but yeah, it's it's like if you have a bad day, it's good to have like an autopilot that can make you those uh, little decisions that can save your life. So it's more like how we interpret these technologies like 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 you said like once it's released we always are very fearful or very skeptical about it but um uh yeah i think and, and one of the key things that maybe i want to probe you more on like do you ever so you said like it's it perfectly like the points that you mentioned are perfectly fair that we should be skeptical about the privacy and like the intrusion of what these tools can do do you think um one of the other skepticism is like AI being like black box models. Like do they, these fields, like if, if I, if I am able to deploy a model that can uh, perform very well on the predefined metrics, like normally how we define metrics, like, okay, these are the, uh, uh, you know, uh, evaluation scores for these models. But do you think these kind of models face a problem of interpretability or explainability of these models when they are deployed in the real world? Um, that is a very difficult question to answer because, I, well, first of all, I'd just say a disclaimer that I'm not um, an expert on interpretability and it's not really an area that I've worked that much in. 
But in terms of like, if you're asking my personal opinion from my experience of working in hospitals, how important is it or how much of a barrier is it? I feel like my opinion shifted on this in the last couple of years because I feel like if you'd have asked me three years ago, is it important for models that are going to be deployed in hospitals to be explainable? I would have probably said, well, yeah, because otherwise how can we trust their decisions? Like, you know, uh, it's going to help us sort of pick up perhaps biases in the models because if if you if you're noticing that the explanation doesn't make any sense for um maybe certain ethnicities or something like that then it helps you to identify these problems i think um now i think while i do take the bias point and i think if it's in situations where the doctor disagrees with perhaps the recommendation or the evaluation risk that this particular model is given um that it would be helpful yes but do I think in most cases you actually need an explanation for a lot of models? I would actually say no, like because um, already doctors use a lot of tools um, to make decisions. Like, for example, a lot of protocols or like uh, treatment uh, regimens in England rely on certain risk scoring. So let's say if you're so Q risk is one type of risk scoring that I think um, evaluates the risk of getting um, a heart problem in the next 10 years or something like that. And then based on that, we might give certain treatments to people whose Q risk is more than 10% or something like that. Um, and, you know, doctors never, ever break down the Q risk score and think, oh, like, why is it come up with a score, a risk of 10%? Even though it's literally just crunching particular numbers and it's a very simple scoring tool I actually think a lot of the time if you replace these sort of scoring tools with more accurate models I don't think it would add anything to um to give it an explanation I think what would be more helpful is to add an uncertainty to it perhaps if it was a um if it's a reliable uncertainty because then then if then you could maybe identify an area where the model's not sure but actually I think explainability could be more important in the not at the individual patient level but maybe just more when you're thinking about is this a model that is safe to deploy or not so maybe in the regulatory phase or approval phase maybe then it would be useful because then you can probe the model and yeah but in terms of do I think the average clinician needs an explainable decision like for the vast majority of use cases, I actually think not. Like, gen, like, am I? I'm surprised that my opinions changed on this, but genuinely, I think being close to being a doctor now, I'll be a practicing doctor in about five or six months, which is quite scary. Am I going to take the time to really think about the reasons behind a lot of these like risk things? Probably not. I'm just going to take the number and use it to then execute my tr- treatment plan. So, yeah. Yeah, I I couldn't agree more because like I'll share maybe like just few points on this because it's it's similar the same trajectory I had for me. So when I started my PhD, like I reached out to my professor and she said like like I'll give you a few months decide like a topic that you might want to focus on so that I can I can focus you on certain projects. And my first idea that I had was like maybe developing like along the lines of title of interpretable interpretable ai models for medical diagnosis and she thought okay i'll 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 maybe put you on projects that can help you decide these kind of thesis direction 
And it's similar to what you said. Uh, fast forward at least two and a half years. I am not that much interested into interpretable AI. As in, and, and, and this comes from a variety of factors. One being, yes, the methods that we have already out there, they do not, like in, in some cases, they do have a value of like using these kind of explainable models, but they do not typically add um, to the application domain. So like, yes, I can use grad based approaches to see where the model is looking, but do those do those things really help me but like if i talk to because i i work with a lot of neurologists over here and they normally typically work with brain scans and we have done like we have published few works that use grad cam based approaches to explain these decisions but they would be rather interested in having like an ai model that can classify and maybe least care about the things that it the model can tell me that oh it, it's looking at this region fine that's okay it's it's more like a shrug that oh it's it's good it it tells me but it doesn't really add a clinical value and um and a few of the other things so uh, I think last to last guess I had was like she worked on transformer models for large language models and few of the things that have been um uh, discovered or maybe known in research communities like most of these models try to find these shortcut knowledges so i mean like something like AlphaGo, right so these kind of models are trained on big models they are highly sophisticated networks and they do find some kind of value in the uh application or whatever it is trying to do like transform models on large language models or um reinforcement learning models like how it was deployed in AlphaGo they normally find these shortcuts to knowledge and they do not translate well to human knowledge so even if the model tells me I did this decision because of xyz that was the explanation that explanation is least understandable by humans but that's 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 the thing like it complements us right it doesn't mean that it has to align with my explanations or my way of belief but it performs well that's good because it it, it maybe learns something better than me so yeah, I, I agree to that. Like interpretable or explainability, I am I'm not that much, uh, you know, like a pro person for that. But it's it's surely interesting when when I think there are lots of government regulations being put in place with these models, and they definitely have a point of proving like these models are not biased. So yeah, understanding if the data like it can tell you if the model you uh sorry the data you used for the model training was biased or not. So those kind of, uh, you know, sanity checks can be used from these kind of methods. But yeah, uh, sorry for the long rhetoric. But yeah, I, I agree what you what you said. Um, and it's, it's really important. But one thing I wanted to pick from what you said was, uh, like along the lines of what you suggested was, um, maybe using these uncertain sets. So as in like making more of a useful, like making a set of problems that are much more useful rather than working on um, problems that do not add a value in the real world. So in, in your experience, do you feel as a community when people try to use AI models for any kind of clinical applications, people pick a data and just apply AI model and publish those results saying that, oh, we find something, we found some correlations, uh, this is the model accuracy. But most of these times do not, they do not reflect like uh, added value in the clinical research or medical research community. So what would you say, like, how do you find problems that are useful to work on? So that has, it has like a positive output to the existing literature in clinical research. First of all, how do you find these problems? And secondly, do you feel this is more than often that people work on problems not really making any sense, but they just publish out like just to prove a point? So how, first of all, like, do you see this is a happening thing in the community? And secondly, how do you identify useful problems to work on? Yeah, that's a really, really good question. Um, and it's one that I probably think about quite a lot. 
Um, I do think the vast, vast majority of research that's done is on problems that have very limited or no clinical impact, which is quite sad when you think about it. You know, countless hours of researchers' time that's not really translating into any impact on real patients. And I think probably a lot of researchers overestimate the clinical impact of their work. They might think, oh, like if I'm working on a a model which is going to predict dementia early, like, you know, if I find potential cases of Parkinson's disease early, they probably think it's going to be revolutionary. And then then when you realise that actually, you know, the treatment for a lot of these things, maybe that's a bad example. I mean, you know, it it might be that... uh, diagnosing these conditions early is you know yeah but something like Huntington's disease for example we don't really have like much of much in the way of treatments to alter the course of the disease and I'd say for most dementias it's kind of similar um so the fact that we might be able to diagnose it two years earlier is probably not going to make that much difference to those patients and that's if it were deployed which is also a big if because the vast majority of projects never get deployed in real practice and that's kind of because they don't really have like much of a clinical impact if they were to be deployed um so yeah i i think i think at the moment we have a problem where a lot of the work is not being focused on problems that have good clinical impact and to some extent I feel like I'm also like I'm not saying that I've spent my PhD work on really impactful problems because a lot of the time like I I have not deployed any of my models either in real practice I mean I'm hoping that in um, two years time I'll actually will deploy one of my models in a real hospital Um, but so far I think because of my PhD and the fact that I'm so early in my career I kind of am in the phase of focusing on building my skill set more than anything so that later on in my career I can then make real clinical impact um so right now like not everyone's goal could be to make the maximum clinical impact I totally get that PhD students might be more interested in you know publishing at the right venues and developing their own skill set and career capital and everything and I, I get it um which also highlights another part which is I think is that the the way that sort of um the way that research is set up at the moment and academia works is sort of to give us the wrong incentives anyway, but that's a whole different conversation. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, in terms of finding impactful problems to work on, that is really tough because I think at the moment, um, so one of the things that I've very much noticed in the past few years of working in the intersection of these fields is that it's very hard to for computer scientists and doctors to collaborate with each other effectively. And I feel like that needs to happen in order for people with the right technical expertise to work on problems that have real clinical impact. Because genuinely, a lot of people with the technical skills just have no idea about the actual impactful problems in practice. Um, And it's really hard for the two to work together because it's like they speak completely different languages. And I, I saw this when I, I did an internship at Microsoft Research um, about nearly three years ago now. And I was literally in meetings where I'm with doctors from, you know, certain hospitals, probably shouldn't say, um, and research.
researchers. And, you know, I'm there thinking I've got like a very basic background in each. So I'm nowhere near as expert as these doctors, these consultants in the room. I'm like, bottom of the rung, I'm a medical student here. (laughs) And I'm also, I don't even have my PhD yet. You know, I'm very early, like, you know, haven't done an undergrad. But yeah, I'm still the only one in the room that's thinking, I know what both of these groups of people are talking about. And I wish that I would just be like, you know, somebody is missing, the, the technical people are totally misunderstanding what the doctors are saying. And the doctors just have no idea like what they're even asking and what the limitations of AI are. And this meeting is just not a productive one. So it's really, really challenging. I feel like being in order to collaborate effectively, you need some knowledge in the other domain to be able to work with those people, if that makes sense. So I feel like we need to establish like a cohort of clinicians, especially, because I think um, that's the area that's really lacking on a lot of these projects. We have the technical expertise that we can deploy, but a lot of the time we just lose that clinical voice, like in the in the project design phase there's no clinical input because that's often the thing that gets missed I think um so we need sort of clinicians who have a bit of a special interest in AI to we need a a way that they can become involved in in the process of developing these models I think but not just in a way where Google approaches a group of doctors and they say yeah sure we can come to these meetings but like they don't actually they can't properly give their input because they can't really understand what's going on from the technical perspective so yeah I think we just need we need education on both sides to help to bridge this gap I think and part of the reason why I am like still in the medical field and I've finished my medical degree and I'm going to become a doctor is because I feel like I realized towards the end of my PhD that I was really enjoying the research I could very happily apply for a job and like a big tech company and work on these projects from a technical angle. And I would probably have a great life and I'd really enjoy it. But again, I might fall into the trap of having no clinical impact because I don't, like I'm going to lose touch with the medical world. The medical world's going to move forward without me. And sure, like I can still talk to doctors, but it's not the same as being in the hospital, being frustrated by all the things that could be optimized by AI. So my plan is to literally be in the hospital with the knowledge of what AI can achieve to then think what problems can I see where AI would just be the right solution for and a lot of these problems are kind of hidden away in specialties where like it's very hard to see in if you're not if you're not already in that world if that makes sense so there's not an easy answer to that the short answer is it's very difficult right now and we need to bridge the gap which is a very big gap at the moment (laughs) Yeah, no, I, I love what you said, like how you ended this particular thing. And I think we need more people like that because like from my own experience, because since most of my PhD is focused on using AI for healthcare problems, uh, when I started off, like I considered myself to be like a pretty good com- communicator, like I can communicate my ideas and I can understand what the other person is saying. But and like we have like almost three years into my PhD, like I have been like, I have like a fantastic communication, ga- uh, communication repo with the people I work 
work with but most of these times like most of these problems that we try to work on so like just last week we had like a brainstorming session of like how we can translate uh 3d images to 4d like something like using structural mri can we uh generate dti images or like fmri images or maybe learn how these kind of mappings can help in migraine detection and this was such a brainstorming idea so it took us almost three hours of non-stop brainstorming because it was very hard for me to understand what is the clinical value. Like, let's say if I build up even a model that can do this, does this add a clinical value? Because yeah, like to be honest, like AI models won't be great at like, you cannot just synthesize a functional MRI scan that's like highly accurate that even humans can not find the uh, uh, like deformities over there. So what does what is the clinical value? And it took me more than one hour to really understand how people... Um, like neurologists really scan a fMRI scan when the person is to be diagnosed with migraine or not, or any kind of treatments are to be supposed to be recommended to that particular person. So I think like now, like when I, when I started off my PhD, I, I felt like, okay, maybe just six months and I should be able to speak languages from both the sides. Coming from a background of technical expertise, I should be fairly competent with explaining AI models. But actually as like the deeper I go into this field, I feel like someone like my professor who has like joint appointments as an engineer and also like a radiology professor, even it's very hard to communicate these ideas because most of these times, like we are, we are working on topics that are least explored or maybe like in, in, in a development phase. So it's like the app ideas are very abstract. And when two different disciplines talk on abstract level, it's, it's very hard to communicate. So I think it's, it's, it's going to be a fantastic field for you, someone like you who can speak from both the angles and more like understanding from clinical workflow work workflows is like much more important because to be honest like ai skills can be learned but having that background of like the clinic complicated workflows that clinical environments provide is really critical to understand so yeah, yeah I, I was just gonna say that when you said about the speaking in abstract terms that is the nail on the head it was like you're in the room and you're thinking everyone's talking on a high level but we're not <laughs> making an actual plan to put this into fruition like <laughs> and yeah it's because you just can't like you can't get beyond the, the very superficial level if you don't like the the doctors didn't have that understanding of what AI can achieve, what its limitations are. And on the flip side, the engineers or the software or the sorry, research scientists um had no idea about the complexity of the clinical workflows or the like how this actually translates to real patients. And often they imagine it as a lot a lot more simple than it actually is in reality but anyway yeah 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 nothing to add over there like i completely agree to that particular point and yeah just to add like maybe i'll, I'll add one small note is like most of the times i feel people are much more interested in the research uh, research component of a particular project to work on rather than its applicability so as in like i would be much more interested in building like a translation model but i would maybe care a little bit less about does it have like a great impact and like helping someone who is really interested so yeah that's also something people should focus on but yeah, i mean it's a it's a diverse world so it's it's very hard to focus on that but um yeah, like I'm, I'm wondering. So, like, I think we we talked at length, but do you have any kind of tips based on these kind of conversations? So, like, do you have any tips for what are the best ways for people to have like interdisciplinary efforts being done at a very concrete level? So, like, would you say 
what how would you go forward like let's say if you are setting up a research lab and you have your expertise and you hired a bunch of people what are the pitfalls that you would i mean we already discussed a couple of them but like would you have any other further insights onto sharing like maybe someone who is working in this field what are the pitfalls to avoid so that we make actual contributions to the field that has some utility yeah so i mean it sounds like the way that you're doing things is kind of the ideal but like it's actually quite rare having spent you know some time in this field where you know you're kind of actually having meetings with clinicians and talking through your ideas and i really think that ultimately that is the answer although it doesn't make the meetings necessarily that easy initially i think um yeah it's i think if i could completely like I almost kind of want uh, at the moment my focus has been more on the medical education side of things so um, I think making sure that any doctor that graduates from a UK medical school has a cursory understanding of what AI is and what the tools are and potentially sort of trying to push towards having a system where um, there's more recognition for clinicians with an interest in AI and maybe have protected time for them to work with either companies or um, academic institutions working on developing AI tools, that we actually have like protected time for those doctors to be involved in that kind of thing. Um, and whether, you know, most ideal worldview could be that there's a there's a nice sort of matching, uh, like some organization that's gonna match doctors to where they're needed. And that if you're a technical team, even maybe like a startup or like, a small group starting out that you can then get access because I think access is a really big problem on the technical end is that they just can't access like doctors because doctors time is already very very pressured um, they're very busy people generally um, and they don't really have time to spend like a whole afternoon battling through a difficult conversation to try and work out what on earth like we're collectively trying to achieve here <laughs> um, yeah so I don't really, I feel like I don't really have the answers because it's an unsolved problem at the moment. <laughs> but yeah. I would definitely encourage people to make sure that they have clinical input to any um, big project that they're undertaking because otherwise, yeah, I just don't think that there's a realistic shot of having a meaningful clinical impact if you don't have doctors involved early because then you could be sinking a lot of time into something that doesn't end up being useful. Makes sense. Makes sense. And I also wanted to also spend some time on your works, maybe trying to understand them more. So can you tell, so one of your works is using convolution neural networks for predicting the length of stay in ICUs for patients. So can you tell a little bit more on, like, since, since we talked about like understanding these problems from a ground level, like as in like from an application perspective and then approaching AI solutions or AI techniques to solve a particular problem. So can you tell a bit more about your work? Like what was the background of that particular problem? And how did you approach, like, how did you go on identifying a problem and then using AI? So scoping the world of AI and you like picking the right particular technique that can solve that particular issue. Mm -hmm. um, well, I feel like I kind of went back and forth from the different perspectives, because initially, I think back in 2017, when I was starting my PhD, um, there were sort of very limited publicly available data sets. Um, that 
I could use to develop AI models. And doing a PhD in computer science means that I need to have a technical contribution. So I could never be so applied that I'm not, you know, developing new methods. Um, so that was always important. So I kind of started with what data is available. Ah, okay, it looks like the best data is for ICU, which makes sense. Other than imaging, sorry, I should say that, because I felt like the imaging space is kind of, um, was a bit more saturated than sort of time series. And I felt like my clinical, my extra clinical knowledge, which is the only thing that I had to differentiate myself at the time, because I was far weaker on the technical elements, um, that I kind of had to make the best of that. And I felt like my understanding of physiological time series data, like how to interpret what blood pressure means in ICU, for instance, or other factors, that I would then need to use to, in order to give myself the, the kind of novel edge in terms of research. So I kind of started with what data is available. Okay, I have some data for ICU. Then can I think of the most scalable and perhaps underserved research problem? So that was when I went to go and speak to various consultants in ICU, so mainly two um, in Adam Brooks, um, one of which I'm sort of closely collaborate with now. Um, but basically they suggested that um, bed management is a really big um, area because if you can make bed management slightly more efficient, you end up making a big impact there, especially in a country like the UK where we actually, and during COVID kind of made this hyper acute really, that um, we actually don't have very many intensive care beds per unit population in the UK. And that is also more the case in Europe than it is in the US. Um, so actually, if you can, it's a like resource allocation problem where all of the resource, there's enough demand that it's going to fill the supply that you have. So um, if you can perhaps discharge a patient a day sooner or something, you, you could potentially have very scalable impact. So that was the plan was to work on problems that would help make allocation of beds more efficient. And then it also means that if it could work in maybe one ICU, you could then, you know, replicate it in others. And um, and because ICU has quite a high mortality um, and also each each bed is very expensive. It's about £2,000 per day to, ha to have a patient in intensive care because it's one-to-one -one nursing staff and it's just very expensive that, you know, we need to make sure that we allocate these fairly and most efficiently. So I worked on a problem which was to predict the length of stay of patients currently in intensive care. Because if you know how long each patient's likely to stay, then you can then um, make sure that you're discharging them on time. Because if you're not anticipating that, then you're not going to sort out all their medication, you know, move them from IV medication to oral medication. Things like that are very important. Taking them off of their ventilator appropriately because they can't be on sort of invasive machines outside of ICU. So things like that. Um, so that was the problem that I really focused on, which is to predict the length of stay of patients. Now, this isn't a totally new problem. There were people also working on it, but far fewer than who were working on mortality, because I think that was just the, the most simple task is, can you predict death? But actually, death is just less useful than <laughs> length of stay, really, um, in terms of the potential applications because um I mean yeah like uh, a lot of the time it's kind of the doctors already know that the patient's doing badly but it's it's a harder problem to predict their 
their actual length of stay is a, it's a more nuanced problem than whether or not they're likely to survive. So I, I also predict mortality, by the way. It wasn't just length of stay, but length of stay was the main focus. And so what I did then was think, okay, how can I make my model the best model at solving this task? Because I can just deploy an LSTM or a transformer, like a standard um, neural network to this problem, which I did do, and it, they did fine. But I thought, well, how do I make it better than that? And I think within medicine, the key at the moment, because we have limited data size, I feel like if you had enough data and the limit of infinite data, the transformer would probably do the best or some fully connected, theoretically, the, the most flexible yeah. model would be the best. But in our case, I think it's mainly how can you use what you already understand about the data to help the model learn from the limited data that it has. So for example, in medicine, we know that patients go to sleep and they wake up. So they have like periodic cycles. We know that they have meal times and they have drug schedules. So they might have their medication every four hours, which might change their physiological um, response to certain things, um, which we, we might basically see periodic cycles in their data. So actually, I think convolution makes a lot more sense, like dilated convolutions where we look at spaced samples, maybe maybe a 24-hour spacing, maybe a six-hour spacing, that kind of thing. But the idea is having these rigid filters where we're looking for patterns so we can sort of extract trends over time that are more suited for purpose than just looking at one time step at a time, or in the case of transformer, having no expectation of structure whatsoever. Um, but yeah, so I think it was thinking about things like that. And it's not just periodicity, but there's other factors, um, you know, thinking about how to treat the missingness of the data um, and how the how different parameters relate to each other as well is also important. Um, because, for example, you know, a patient's blood oxygen could be high just because they're breathing in 100% oxygen. So it's important to sort of, interpret each parameter in the context of the rest of the patient so using all this knowledge of how um medical time series behave i then use like design this convolutional model um to predict length of stay better and it to my knowledge i think at the time it was the first sort of model that was really focused on convolution um to to solve that task and we ended up doing a lot better than lstm and transformer so i think yeah, so I ended up using like my medical knowledge of how how I expect the data to behave to then give the model a sort of prime it to be able to pick these patterns up more easily than if it had no expectation of the structure whatsoever, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I I, I was just going to say, I, I love that as in like what you said about like you, uh, you, you had a better understanding of what data you were going to analyze or use it for the models and then you moved on to choosing like a model which works best and this this has been like a constant struggle even for me because most of the times we are we are posed with like some kind of data set that we want a very high level fruit that we want like the end goal but like having the details in between like what exactly are we looking at like what would a person with medical expertise would look at so it's it's definitely we can prune down or maybe prune down certain aspects of this particular data set that can help me 
better design my AI experiments. So I, I, I love that. And, and maybe like one of the few things that I noticed, even like when I was reading your works, uh, like broadly speaking, I think most of these applications of AI in healthcare, they try to focus on two particular things. One is fixing or maybe improving existing gaps in the workflow or any kind of system that they have in medical uh, background or medical settings. And secondly, is more like discovery. So it's like basically using AI for discovering something novel. What you like in one of the earlier answers, you, you said something for uh, early prediction, right? So it is something lesser known. So like, at least for me, I know for Alzheimer's background, like I work with three groups who have different expertise and approaching Alzheimer's from a different perspective. They always say this one particular thing, like early prediction, right? So like, I was very curious and I attended like a couple of conferences, Alzheimer's Association. It's like a very big conference for people who are working on Alzheimer's research. And they actually showed like a couple of, uh, I mean, more than more than few particular interventions that can like, the, these are coming from clinicians who have expertise working on these particular um interventions and they say if we have a better prediction we at least have some shot so it's basically like we are trying to explore uh, use ai to maybe explore something novel i, I mean it could be a dead end like for sure it, it doesn't help like you said like having early prediction for two, two years it might not have any significant value but it's more like they're trying to understand what's going on like we like experts would yeah. say like we do not have an understanding of what's going on like for example migraine like i work with this group of with Mayo Clinic, they really don't know what's going on in the brain. Like for Alzheimer's, you know that there are some kind of amyloid plaques that get deposited in your brain and there are structural damages and blah, blah. But that's at least good to know. Like we know what's causing this issue. But for migraine, it is least known. Like they don't even know what's happening. All just all they just know is like people suffer from pain. It's like some form of pain that's going on in your white matter. I mean, I, I could be butchering up the words that I'm using, but it's some kind of uh, pain pain thresholds that go into your brain. So it's more like discovery. So I just wanted to highlight like, like what I love about your works or at least few sets of works that you have done is more like fixing the gaps that has like at least some definite interest from medical community because we know these are the gaps that I see in this existing flow and it aligns with your particular expertise because you have been working in this field so you are the most eligible person to find these gaps so yeah just just wanted to comment on that so thanks thanks for sharing that yeah that's okay and I think um just to say that I think I slightly neglected that side of things because actually um you know using AI to discover more or to improve our understanding of conditions is a super valid and exciting strategy. And it's kind of one that I've taken in my most recent project as well. Um, and just to say also that, you know, just because um, let's say that we can't intervene at the moment, identifying patients early that might have interesting conditions could lead to new possibilities in studying them. And so this yeah. actually came up, I think, um, when I was at AAAI this year, um, someone was presenting about... Um, about uh, identifying some kind of dementia early. And I think I said, you know, I'd like, I, they were under the impression that the clinical impact was that they would be able to identify these early and would be able to treat them. And so I think I was thinking, I think the real potential clinical impact could be for science and the fact that you can recruit them earlier to study them in more detail. And that is yeah. itself a super exciting thing. But I think people need to have in their heads what it is that they're trying to achieve and be very clear about like the potential clinical impact. Um, and yeah, what you said about migraine made me smile because I remember learning about it in medical school and they were like, 
you know, we've got three hypotheses. We've got the vascular hypothesis. We've got the sort of like uh, the, the one where like you've got a wave of deep, like they have no idea what's going on. And same with paracetamol. We, we don't understand how paracetamol works, which is crazy. Um, I think for anyone who's American, it's Tylenol um, that I'm talking about. <laughs> um, we have a vague sense that it's, that there is a mechanism that it works via Cox enzymes, but we don't actually really understand its pain, its analgesia um, effect. It's kind of puzzling still. So it's interesting. There's still major things that we have no idea about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, 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 that's one of the few things that really makes me excited about working on these projects, to be honest. Like, yeah, like I said, like I, I would be least interested if I'm using AI for recommendation algorithms, but it, it makes me more intrigued applying to these kind of uh, domains, even if the research output is bad, but I'll, I'll be still more internally motivated. But but yeah, talking about triple AI. So like I I saw one of your recent works that you tweeted on Twitter is using uh using outcome based clustering algorithm for mechanically ventilated patients. So like I I won't go into the details of explaining that. Like I'll leave it up to you. But like, can you maybe explain a little bit about your background? Like what what does that particular problem uh, entail, and how did you use like what kind of models uh made its way to fixing those gaps? Hmm. Yeah. So um. My interest in mechanical ventilation goes right back to my first year because um, I've always been kind of interested in reinforcement learning. I just find it really cool, but I've never actually successfully done a research project in the area. And my first year of my PhD was kind of the story of my foray into reinforcement learning, despite the fact that I had no technical background, no one else in my lab was working towards it. So obviously I wasn't going to succeed, especially in a healthcare domain where the data is really noisy and just not like, yeah. Um, but I did become very interested in mechanical ventilation because I realized having spoken to clinicians at the time for that project, um, that actually we don't have a clear sense of what we're doing with mechanical ventilation because, for example, if someone's on a ventilator, the doctor will set certain parameters like what pressure we're going to deliver the air into the patient's lungs, um, what what sort of volume of expansion we're, we're looking for. There's various settings about five or six settings that you can play with. And really, every single clinician is going to set probably the ventilator slightly different for different patients or maybe even the same patient. But there's not really a sort of established, optimized strategy at the moment. There's vague rules of thumbs that we know, like you shouldn't give too much pressure because it damages the lungs. But actually, the amount that we don't really understand is quite shocking. And especially when you consider that the mortality of these patients on artificial ventilation is quite high and they're very vulnerable and their lungs are not in a good state. So surely it should matter what we're doing. And yet we don't really have a very good understanding. So at the time, I was trying to use reinforcement learning to basically the action space would be to choose the various different parameters and the um, reward would be some like maybe intermediate physiological state of the patient or something. Um, but then I think by the time I'd actually done most of my PhD, I kind of was thinking a bit more realistic um, at the time because I think anything more concrete that we're going to get from this may be sort of directing like clinical research trials to more promising directions. We might need to be a bit more simpler with the methods and a bit more kind of more concrete. So 
My most recent project aimed to basically cluster patients. So when I say cluster, I mean like um, assign a dynamic clustering so that for each time point along the patient's stay, we have an idea of what kind of category of patient we're thinking about. Um, and the reason why that problem is important is because the patients on mechanical ventilation, it's not just one group of people. You know, there are some that are on mechanical ventilation because they've had surgery or they're unconscious or they're recovering for an anesthetic or something. Um, so they've got perfectly healthy lungs. And then we've got patients who've got really bad COVID or terrible pneumonia and they just can't expand their own lungs because they're full of fluid and infection and things. Um, and there'll be some that have chronic lung diseases, so it's more chronic than acute. And yeah, so we kind of wanted to be able to separate these patients into different clusters, have a look at the clusters in more detail, and particularly analyze, you know, if we can see where patients maybe change cluster. So maybe go from acutely bad subtype where the, the outlook is not good to healthy again, um, and maybe the reverse. Um, and we also wanted, so maybe sort of that's a way to you know we're not doing causal modeling but we're also doing we're kind of getting at that where we can start analyzing like where we're seeing these shifts um in the patient's prognosis and analyzing that in a more, bit more detail so again it's kind of like a bit more investigative investigative like where we don't necessarily know exactly what we're looking for but we're trying to improve our understanding um and also, yeah, another thing that we're interested in is if we can subtype patients reliably, can we, how early on in the patient's stay do, can we usually cluster the patient? So if we take aside any sort of unexpected event in the patient's stay, so not the patients where they look like they're going in one direction and they change, most patients kind of have a steady trajectory that's a bit more predictable. We want to know how early on we can identify that. And that's important because it would mean if we're going to do more personalized treatment strategies, let's say if we're going to develop more specialized protocols for what mechanical ventilation we should do, we need to be able to identify that patient early on so that we can then identify that cohort, which we're specializing the, the technique for. So that's kind of the, the angle that we took. Um, and... Yeah, so we kind of wanted to know what do the different subtypes of patient look like and can we reliably identify them early so that potential kind of interventional studies could generate that cohort super early and then trial different treatments on that specific group of people, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I, I love that. I love that. And I think one of the, like, just to add on that, like, I, I won't have anything add to on that particular project itself, but just to add something, what you said for subtyping, right? So that's also one of the key things that I have seen at least few works focus on. And one of the key things that we, we are going to publish very recently is... Um, uh, this idea of using subtyping for understanding different trajectory of uh, disease progression is something uh, that we, we stumbled onto that. Like, to be honest, I wasn't expecting that in my results. So one of these things that what I'm using is using AI model to understand the aging effects in your brain. So we have like, for my particular model, I'm using like a healthy cohort to build this model. And then we test out on 80 patients. But one of the key things that I noticed was I, I used some kind of metric to get the value of like, what is the amount of aging effects in your brain? 
and I just plotted those results. And my my only my only assumption was like I would be able to detect AD versus healthy patients, right? Like the very naive way of club making classification model. But one of the key things that we noticed was so there are apparently there, there are these clinical categories that makes you go from being healthy to AD patients. So there are like MCI patients, which in, in terms of cognition, they fall somewhere in between being like a extremely AD patient versus being like a healthy patient. And there are something called MCI stable, MCI converting, MCI non-converting. So there are also people who classy like maybe might be labeled as MCI, but like uh, so. By the way, MCI stands for mild cognitive impairment. And like basically, if 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 the patient did not suffer from those kind of cognition impairments, he will be converting back to healthy, like maybe acting more like healthy. And we actually saw like a very good subtyping tra trajectory from that aging effects that perfectly correlates to these five categories. So people who are converting back to healthy had the had the least amount of aging effects versus people who are converting to AD, they had like more aging effects. And this was something like, it just relates to what you said for these particular things, as in um, like making or using these kind of techniques to subcluster or maybe like subtype these patients that we might not have an understanding for. So yeah, just 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 to add on that, like it, it's a, I think it's a very valid topic to explore, like subtyping certain certain trajectories that people might not have an understanding for. So yeah, mm. but yeah, um, yeah, I think we are close to the time. But I wanted to like get one opinion answer from Luke. I think one of the earlier questions you uh, in, in one of the earlier questions you did answer is people have been oh, like the field of vision is like sufficiently explored in medical research and something like language models is something very interesting so i, wonder, I just wanted to maybe like poke your brain on like do you think at least tools like chat gpt or any kind of generative models that are being i think talked a lot recently is can be is can be like can they be really useful in clinical settings like do you can you think of these kind of tools being used in clinical settings in any whatsoever ways and i'm asking you because you have the most expertise of understanding these workflows so at least would you would you would you like think from any kind of utility for these models i'm sure there are definitely uses to the models i mean anyone that's kind of had a play around with chat gpt or gpt4 like can very quickly see how impressive it is I think, um, you know, and the, the speed of the pro progress as well is insane. I think, is it ChatGPT4 can now pass the USMLE exam, which is the uh, US medical licensing exam. <laughs> but the interesting thing about that is that it actually, it only gets just above the pass mark. So it's like the level of a kind of bad student. Um, yeah. Kind of interesting because I think from what I've observed, like playing around with it, it's almost like the the outputs of the language models are super convincing. I feel like if you're not already an expert in the area, you could very easily be fooled by the answers that are given. Like if you say like, I don't know, what are the most interesting areas of frontiers of research in I don't know, quantum computing or something more specific that I don't know anything about, it could give me something back and I think, wow, like, you know, this is amazing. <laughs> But actually, if you're an expert in that field, like I asked it about my own work, <laughs> um, actually, and there, there are errors and inaccuracies in, in there. So I'm like, no, that's not right. That wasn't the main aim of that project. And, you know, so you kind of notice things when you're an expert that it doesn't quite get right. Um, so I feel like it's uh, it's a little bit off being used sort of autonomously in any medical context, I feel like. you 
if I can't trust it for small things, I, I really wouldn't want to trust it to write a discharge summary or something yet. But I might be, you know, I might be reevaluating that statement in only six months time at this rate, because like, it might be just as reliable um, in, you know, a year's time. There are definitely lots of text-based tasks that I feel like we, um, you know, that we have in medicine and that waste a lot of doctors' time. I feel like, you know, a lot of junior doctors are spending a lot of time writing up letters of what happened to a patient in hospital when they could be providing direct care to patients. And I feel like the past 30 years have seen a kind of movement away from doctors spending time talking to the patient, gathering information and examining, and more towards admin tasks. And I feel like AI is actually quite a cool opportunity, and particularly a lot of the language stuff as well, um, of moving away from that side of the job and back to its roots, actually. So, yeah, I definitely think there's a role for it. I think it'll take a bit, it'll definitely take longer to filter into medicine because of um, the fact that the data is harder to access and regulatory, that's another area that we haven't really talked about, but the regulations for AI to be deployed are totally un unsuitable for purpose. Like they actually use the medical devices legislation, um, which was kind of designed to regulate kind of uh, implants for knee replacements and other things that you actually put in the body or you use or you know it's not it's not really built for software especially as like something like AI software you'd want to update it periodically with new data and yeah. like alter the way and you'd have to just there's no kind of provision for for that um you know you kind of have to redo a lot of that because if you're going to alter a component in a knee replacement you need to fully get that new material kind of approved for use in the human body and that it's non-toxic etc but actually yeah so that that's another topic but so I think there will be delays in it being used because of interoperability issues IT problems and regulatory problems and possibly ethics as well and um, you know there's no guarantee that the model's not going to be like I think we've we've definitely seen examples of AI models being like you know prejudiced in various ways, and we need to make sure that's not the case. Um, but do I think it could have potential uses? Absolutely, there are probably far more potential use cases than I can even think of right now, um, and I think eventually we will see them. Yeah, definitely, and I think um, like rightly so. I think medical community has been the maybe like the slowest adopter of ai technologies and i and i'm 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 pro for that like that should be the thing it should not be just easily yeah. adopted unless these tools are heavily matured enough to be used in these kind of settings because it's a very high stake um application domain but yeah i i, I love that i like I, I think i have been reading a lot of uh, papers that are posted on archive that people have been using or proposing to use chat like models to maybe summarize clinical notes or maybe like uh have like a very rough summary of like people like that let's say uh, like, like you are a person who is may maybe taking or making these clinical notes it's a long list i don't have the time to go through all of these like when it goes to like someone senior or someone who is an expert it kind of summarizes in his or her own way so it's more like having like a standard trained model that can summarize few things in a standard template how i do that like people can just train models like ChatGPT or pre like fine-tune these models and then it can create a very concise summary what it does what does it mean so that would be like a life-saving thing something what you said for screening so that would be like a um, 
uh, very nice application. But like like I said, like you said, like it, it it will take a long time, at least at least few more years, to go from there. Someone trying it out, playing it out, and maybe failing those re- and reporting those results of failure. So, but yeah, that, it's surely interesting. It's it's something on a new charter domain. So it would be improving, hopefully improving the practice. I wish it would come in slightly sooner because I'm due to be a junior and so I'm going to be the ones writing up the letters of what happened and I wish I could (laughs) just send it to chat GPT or like medical, maybe there'll be a medical GPT or something in the future. Anyway. Yeah, I I think I posted like a post on LinkedIn sometime back, like as in like I was I was inviting someone who has worked on ChatGPT, and like I posted like a LinkedIn post saying that do you have any questions? Like do you have like the audience has any questions that I can ask this particular person that I might be missing? And someone actually DM'd me saying that why don't you ask ChatGPT? And he actually posted a photo of like a. a query into chat gpt saying like i'm inviting an inventor of chat gpt what questions i should ask and that uh, chat gpt gave me 15 questions and there were like more than 10 questions that i didn't even think of and i was like damn that's 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 impressive now like i haven't been a fan of chat gpt for, for a long time but that particular instance and i was like okay i maybe i need to i need to explore more so that i'm not left out on the you know the creative ideas that might be out there in the world so yeah, it's impressive yeah yeah and programming as well, like asking it to make, to write certain programs. Like I've already used that and that is amazing. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, no, that's completely fine. Yeah, that's something I need to, I need to explore more. Yeah. But I, I wanted to squeeze in a last question and maybe uh, this also relates to one of the things that you bookmark in one of the answers that we, we talked about in, in the earlier conversation is the, like, talking more about your academic life or maybe like a researcher career. So there's always a tendency of like uh, an over uh, overwhelming need to publish stuff and something like what you said, like there is a whole game of like people just trying to uh, publish out stuff. It might not have any sense or it might not have any actual impact, but they are just exploring and publishing. And it, it, it's now more like now more than ever, it's very hard to compete with these people who are in the AI giants field, right? So like it's, it's like, to be honest, like I post lesser on Instagram, but still I still see more people publishing on archive. It's like very, very hard to keep up with people who are pulling, pushing out stuff that works on AI and any kind of interdisciplinary field. So first of all, I wanted to ask question is like, do you feel overwhelmed by the kind of works being done in AI field? And secondly, what would you say about the about that particular factor that in, in order to make like a good research uh, thesis so that you go out in the industry or academia, you make up a good profile for a research career. Is it true that we need more papers, more, um, you know, like just the quantity of work over quality of work nowadays? Is that the sad reality? So uh, like, what are your comments on these two particular things? Like maybe you can interconnect them if you want. Yeah, I do feel like the incentive to publish is very strong. Like, um I mean, at the moment, it is getting more and more competitive and it feels like people are demanding quantity and sort of quality. When I say sort of quality, I mean like they want them at like Neurips, ICML, like iClear venues or whatever. Um, and and they want kind of like one or two papers a year kind of thing or even more in some groups, which is crazy. Um, and I think just if if that's the way that you're working, it kind of means that you can't really drill down and take the time into really solving meaningful problems and involving clinicians because all of that is going to take more time and you're going to probably invest 
more into a single project in order for that to happen. Um, I think for me, like initially, did I feel overwhelmed? Yes. Like in the group that I'm in as well, you know, I felt like I just wasn't on the same level as everyone else. I didn't publish as much as everyone else in my PhD group. But I think later on, I kind of had more, I allowed myself to rely on the confidence that I'm building up a skill set that is in demand. I think try not to lose sight of why you're doing what you're doing and what your end goal is. Like my end goal was to have a a career in research where I'm contributing meaningfully and using my skills to the best of my ability to impact patients at scale, hopefully in the future. And so I knew that I was investing this time to develop skills, which are going to then allow me to do that later on. And if that means that I'm not publishing in sort of these big conferences every year, that, I mean, that seemed okay to me at the time later on. Um, and yeah, and I think kind of if you dial back 50 years, we didn't, they didn't really have that. It was more than okay to only publish once in your PhD. And it still is, I think, in some domains, you know, if you look back in, into maybe biology or more experimental areas, it is like anyone who gets one nature publication, which took four years of effort, is well worth that time. And that is more impact maybe than having six papers <laughs> in your PhD, yeah. which, like, you know, um, and just because something is cite- cited a lot as well, does also doesn't mean that it's a massive contribution, which, you know, yeah. it's also like, this is how we measure these things. And back to the question of like, is this what sh- people should be doing? It's really tough because I feel like if people are trying to get competitive postdoc positions and, you know, next stage, next stage, like a lot of the time, that is the way that people are going to whittle down candidates. And so you kind of have to play this game, but it's not, it's not a like it's not your fault that that is the way that the system is set up but if you want to succeed in the existing system there's an element that you kind of have to work within within it and I feel like for me it's kind of a bit easier because there are very few people with my skill set and so I feel like even if I don't have the same publication record as someone else it kind of matters less because I don't really fit the mold anyway and if you're a MB PhD student it's easier because of your medical side to still get those positions in certain institutions even if you don't have the same because they don't expect it because you're not spending all of your time doing research um so yeah I would I would encourage people to try not to lose sight of impact but also I get that people are incentivized to become publishing machines (laughs) just kind of sad (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I think I, I think that I, I was uh, uh, applying to some position, I forgot, like, I don't want to take any names for the big companies, but I, I, I honestly don't remember like which company it was like, and, and they have like an eligibility requirement that you should be having like at least uh, three papers in, in a brackets of triple AI, NeurIPS, um, CVPR and something. And that was just for an internship. Now it's like, damn, yeah. that's like, and and th- th- that's really hard. I mean, I'm, I, but to be honest, like I have seen a lot of students who are also publishing in this particular domain. So it's like the bar is very high than ever. It's like very hard to get into these kind of internships and internships are like very, at least for PhD students, it's like one of a few openings. It's like, they don't have as much opening as like you have like for software engineers. So it's like very 
competitive for people to get into these but just looking at like having that particular thing in your eligibility requirements it made me strike on that oh wow that's something maybe i need to focus also my efforts on like what you said it's like a balance of like yes i should be focusing more on impact but it's at least i need to learn how to play the game itself to maybe stand out or maybe do whatever i want to do so yeah that makes sense at least at least it's it's good to know uh, that at least someone feels the same way so yeah it's 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 really interesting than ever um but um yeah i i just wanted to end like maybe just like get a one short question in is like do you have any tips for people and the reason i ask for tips is for people like uh, at least know a few people who are in the audience that might be interested like or might be working in an interdisciplinary field and if you want to pick up you can also pick up like the healthcare domain what kind of tips would you give to people who are building up their career trying to be on that particular bridging gap like you are so you are bridging two particular domains what are kind like overall like we talked a lot about the pitfalls that maybe people can avoid and advices you shared but like overall do you have any kind of advice for people who are starting off and feeling overwhelmed by two particular fields like you said like you want like there are chances like you are um, you're like jack of all master of none kind of scenarios but like when you are starting out in this field how what what kind of advice would you give to those people yeah so i think i would encourage people as much as possible to be bold in your decision making and for me that meant constantly putting myself out of my comfort zone so once i was a medical student i was comfortable as an undergraduate medical student then i go into third year engineering and i'm now in a course where i haven't done the first two years everyone else has i'm like you know <laughs> like yeah it feels like you kind of suddenly um in a very unfamiliar environment and then again you know putting myself in a position where I'm in a computational group and that's not at all my background but I think the the rationale behind that is okay I feel like I have access to the medical side of things now I know I, I don't know everything far from it I'm very junior but I know how to go about getting that expertise I don't know anything about the computer science side so I should put myself in a lab where I'm the only one <laughs> who has come from this background and they all have the background that I'm aspiring to because then you know I can chat to people I have so much more access to all this area that I know nothing about so I think that was key because you know I had a choice at that point I could have applied for a kind of computational clinical informatics type phd where I could have been the main technical person in a medicine based lab and I could be exploring that interest by myself but surely that would be far less immersive than putting myself in a position of you know uncertainty and being amongst the people that i amongst people that have that expertise that i want to gain and i think that's really important so i would say no matter what it is you're doing like if you want to become you're interested in entrepreneurial stuff or you know or, or the main you're coming from a technical background but you want to move into healthcare like try and put yourself in as much situations as possible where you're surrounded by people with the expertise that you want to gain gain a mentor specifically in the field that you're not comfortable in rather than the the one that you're coming from and for me like i had i initially had two phd supervisors um one in clinical and one in technical and like i think that's also important but also make make your primary supervisor your primary lab in the area that you don't already know anything about so that would be my uh, if you're not feeling like you've got imposter syndrome 
or you're not feeling like you're out of your comfort zone, I feel like that is a sign that maybe you should be pushing yourself. I mean, yeah, like hopefully once once I settle into my career and I kind of end the skill building phase, I won't need to feel like that all the time. But because um, it's a less comfortable place to be. But I think once you're trying to build your skill set, it's a good sign to just constantly put yourself in, yeah, less comfortable situations. Yeah, and and most of the things I think when you're working on these research projects, it's much more about the like the creative aspect of working on these problem solving uh, domains, right? So like how much you can be creative about picking out a problem and then tackling it with the best knowledge that you have. And in those cases, like what you said makes sense, like and putting out in an uncomfortable domain or maybe like what you said is like uh, having a mentor that is like outside of your field or maybe like some something you are trying to hone your expertise in. And then he or she might be able to comment more and that will at least make you like a better uh, better contributor to that particular problem rather than what you had like the comfort zone. Like if you are a technical person, like, hey, that's, that's what you're going um, specialize on but like the beauty happens is when when you try to figure out these intersecting or overlapping domains so yeah that that makes sense that's that's a lot nice uh to hear so that's good to you thanks for sharing but yeah i think that's all i have like we are, we are fairly over the time but i think we had some very nice discussions over, over from your background to talking about like the broad spectrum of ai and medical research which i think is for really exciting to learn from few things that i learned from you like someone from who is like a clinical background so thanks for sharing all these insights hopefully they are also as interesting for people who are listening to this particular podcast so once again Thanks for being here. It was a great podcast, great conversation, and hoping to have you maybe sometime later once you join as an uh, academic doctor. It would be fun to have much more deeper insights into how that particular field looks like and how the landscape of AI looks from a different perspective. So, yeah. Yeah, thank you so much for having me.